It's Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. It's day three of the winter meetings at Dallas's Hilton Anatoly, and it's the third consecutive day in which we talk with Dave Cameron, our managing editor, who's stationed in the bowels of said Hilton. In what follows, I extract from Dave Cameron a status update on Albert Pujols, where it looks like he might sign and when. We consider a busy Tuesday for the New York Mets, which saw them acquire, in the span of an hour or so, three relief pitchers. We look at a relief pitcher on his way to Toronto and another one who might be on his way to San Diego. And if you listen closely, you might get to hear me, Carson Sestouli, talk, at least in some depth, about my fantasy team, a segment that is also known as Radio Gold. Please do continue listening right now to my conversation with Dave Cameron. like he's almost certainly going to decide to say. Uh, a lot of people are just kind of tired of talking about it now, so there's a little bit of a, let's just get this over and move on with our lives feeling on here, but I, it seems like the pool's resolution is going to happen pretty soon. I saw I saw uh, that there's a Marlins offer. Um, I saw that there is a Cardinals offer, I think, for 10 to 20 that's what the rumor was this morning, that the Cardinals have up their original offer to 10 to 20. That seems like a lot, although I guess the average annual value is probably a little bit lower than we would have originally assumed. Well, it seems like uh, from the beginning, Pools has been prioritizing years over uh, AAV. And so, I mean, you know, the best player in baseball should probably get more than Ryan Howard in an AAV, but when you're getting a deal twice as long, teams are just not going to pay out $25 million over 10 years. So uh, I think he's willing to concede a few million each year in order to get uh, the 10-year deal. And do, do you have a sense of what the Marlins' total value is? It's in the low 200s. I think uh, both offers are probably in that same range. Uh, it's possible that the Marlins could raise their offer and nobody knows about it, but uh, Ken Rosenthal reported they made their last and best offer. Um, but my guess is it was you know, substantially more than 10 to 20. If they had gone to 10 to 50 or something, he probably would have signed by now. Yeah, well, that's what I'm curious about. If the offers are the same, wouldn't we assume that Pujols would would take the Cardinals' offer? I think the uh, you would you would think so, but there's apparently a little more to the story than just um, you know he wants to stay in St. Louis and he's being wooed by a higher bidder. Uh, there are some talks that Pujols is a little bit offended with the Cardinals over how they've handled this whole situation. Uh, he feels like maybe it is. I'm not saying he does feel this way. There's talk that he may feel that they should have locked him up last winter, and so there's a little bit of, I'm going to extract every last penny from them because they weren't willing to give me the security and they made me go through this whole process. Uh, so, you know, I don't know whether Pools is actually that vindictive or not, or maybe his agent has just told him, hey, look, I can get you $10 million more if you just hang tight for a few more days. Uh, you know, that's possible as well. There's also the appearance maybe of a mystery team. The mystery team kind of came and went a little bit last night. Uh, Bob Nightingale reported there was a third team, and then uh, there was reports that that was the Angels, and then the Angels were like, no way, that's not us. And then, then all of a sudden it was back down to two. So uh, it seems like you know there may have been a mystery team or it may have just been uh, you know agent cover to drive up an offer. Uh, the Angels may or may not have made a phone call. The Cubs may or may not be involved. There's a lot of 
things that we don't know. Well, basically what we do know is the Marlins and Cardinals have made 10-year offers for greater than $200 million. It seems likely he will choose between those two offers today. Right. Well, with regard to the mystery team, I remember it was the subject of great derision on the, the Twitters last year among baseball nerds. Uh, and then it turned out there actually was a mystery team for Cliff Lee, I think. Yeah, and I was actually, uh, when I was hanging out with Ben uh, Nicholson-Smith of MLB Trade Rumors yesterday, we were joking around a little bit because, uh, you know, he's kind of buys into the mystery team a little more than I do. I think it's generally a ploy to get more money from whoever you're negotiating with and get them to negotiate against themselves. But, uh, you know, his argument was in the Cliff Lee train. The deal there was a mystery team to me i think that was maybe a little bit more of a mystery free and like you know the rangers and yankees were bidding on cliff lee but cliff lee wanted to go to philadelphia it wasn't that the philadelphia phillies like were overwhelmingly um planning this coup at the end where they were going to sneak in and steal him away uh, i think cliff lee just called his agent and said figure out how much i can get from the phillies and so uh do we know that pools has that same affection for some unnamed team i think it's unlikely and so to me, I think uh, rather than a mystery team, that was more of a, uh, a player-specific case last year. And so, uh, hypothetically, if Pujols does sign with the Marlins, I think we talked about this briefly yesterday, we'd probably see Gavi Sanchez on the trade block immediately? Yeah, I would imagine they've probably already had conversations with teams who are lined up to trade for Gabby Sanchez. Uh, and the, the domino falling, um, I guess, would be the Cubs and Rays would probably be at the top of those lists. Teams looking for young, cheap, uh, cost-controlled first basemen. Um, my guess is they've already had parameter discussions. If we sign pools, what are you willing to give us for Sanchez? And it wouldn't take too terribly long for them to get something done. Strange thing happened yesterday. The Mets acquired by means of um, signing and also trade three relief pitchers. And I guess they're now it's they're now the, the team's three best relief pitchers. But they have John Roush, Frank Francisco, and Ramon Ramirez all on their team. Is that It seems odd, uh, especially for sort of sabermetric orthodoxy, for a team in the Mets position, which is probably not competitive in 2012, to be pursuing re, uh, relief pitching so fervently. Uh, yeah, I mean, the funny thing to me was that those deals all happened in the span of an hour. So within about 5 o'clock, the Mets had no bullpen, and by 6 o'clock, they had a full bullpen. So it was uh, interesting to see. I think the uh, – I actually like Frank Francisco. I, you know, I made a comparison with him earlier this offseason. I think that they're pretty similar, uh, and you should expect things from them going forward. So getting Francisco 212 when the market's paying 327 for Heath Bell is not a bad idea. I think there's value if you can stick Francisco in the closer role. Uh, let him have a pretty good first half, get 25 saves, and then all of a sudden you've got, you know, a closer who's owed $9 million for the next year and a half and you can dangle him at the trade deadline. That's not a terrible idea. And so I would almost look at it as the Mets are buying prospects in July. They're just doing it now by finding a closer. Um, you know, as for the, the John Roush, you know, he's a, essentially just a, a filler guy. I mean, he's not a bad pitcher. He's not a good pitcher. He didn't cost a lot, but they need someone to pitch innings and he's not overly expensive. And uh, Ramon Mears, I think, was um, kind of an extra in the swap of uh, center fielders who had down years. So I don't know if the, the Mets set out and said, let's build ourselves a bullpen. I think it may have just you know, turned out that way. Uh, curious, in that, um, in that Giants trade, the Giants-Mets trade, you have uh, Angel Pagan going to San Francisco and you have Andres Torres coming back. You know, if you sort of squint or kind of blur the edges a little bit, Torres and Pagan – appear to be pretty similar players with the difference that Pagan is, uh, I think, three years younger and slightly more expensive. I mean, is that an accurate reading? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that they're uh, similar skill sets. I mean, for both of them, you're looking at, you know, uh, guys who are um, not classic center fielders, not guys that scouts are in love with, do some things well, uh, profile to have about the same amount of value. They get there a little bit differently. Torres strikes out a lot more than Pagan does. Uh, and Torres' defensive metrics are better than Pagan's, uh, who went down quite a bit last year, but were pre- good previously. So it kind of depends on what you feel about Pagan's future defensive value. If you think he's a good defensive center fielder, he's an average league average hitter, that's a nice player. If you think he's maybe more of a fringy corner outfielder guy who can play center uh, in, in a pinch, then he's more of a fourth outfielder. Um, but I do think it's an interesting swap of my center fielder who had a bad year for your center fielder who had a bad year. With, uh, I guess it's a classic change of scenery. Um, you know, and I think uh, I would prefer Pagan a little bit over Torres, um, but I, I don't think the difference is dramatic. Is Pagan a fourth outfielder with the Giants then for now, with, with Sheerholtz, Cabrera, and I guess Brandon Belt in the outfield? Yeah, it seems like the, this probably takes the Giants out of uh, any Carlos Beltran rumors. It seems like their outfield's probably set now. Um, I mean, it's possible that they could find Beltran and then just bench Aubrey Huff, but uh, I don't think that they would go in that direction necessarily. Robert Sanchez tried to trade me in the Auto New League. He tried to trade me Angel Pagan for Felipe Paulino the other day. That would be an interesting swap. I mean, I, I'm actually a Felipe Paulino guy. I like him a lot. No, I uh, like him a lot, too. He's on my team. That's why I like him. Right. And uh, but, but Pagan, I think, is uh, an interesting piece. Um, you know, Pagan's probably a little bit safer. Paulino's got a little more upside. I guess it would depend on where you guys are in your various respective chances of contending next year. Uh, but now I will say we've gone down the rabbit hole of talking about someone's fantasy baseball team, which is guaranteed terrible podcasting. Oh, no. Everyone likes to listen to w- about one guy's fantasy team. That's, uh, that's <laughs> We call that Radio Gold. Oh, no. It's probably why you're not in radio then. Oh, boy. The – the um, no, that's right. I've just been relegated to the world of podcasting. The There was another trade yesterday – uh, Sergio Santos from the White Sox to uh, the Blue Jays for Nestor Molina. Uh, yeah. Anytime you see a trade for a relief pitcher, you, you know the knee-jerk reaction is to is to question the wisdom of the same, especially if it's for uh, a young starting pitcher. However, it's uh, Alex Anthopoulos making the trade, and so that also colors it. Well, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the Alex Antopoulos who does everything amazing uh, meme, but I do think that this trade makes a lot of sense for Blue Jays. I mean, if you look at what closers are getting this offseason, uh, what they've generally fetched in trade at trade deadlines before, uh, this is a bargain for Sergio Santos. I mean, he's not uh, maybe the best closer in baseball. He's still got command problems, and there's not a long track record of success, but he is a super high strikeout, power arm, throws hard, good stuff. Uh, under club control for six years, uh, only guaranteed $8 million over the next three, and then it's three-team options. Uh, Santos is a, a valuable piece, and to um, you know, look at what closers generally get when they're traded at the trade deadline, they get more than Nestor Molina when they have two months left on their contract and the team's trying to make a playoff run. To get six years of a quality closer at no money for one pitching prospect who's fine but not amazing, I mean, Nestor Molina doesn't project as an ace, uh, it seems like this is a, an odd trade for the White Sox, to be honest. Well, Molina's curious, right? I, it seems as though so far in his minor league days, his his numbers have played above his stuff. That's generally the sense I've got. Although there's nothing – he has no poor pitches. He just maybe has nothing plus except a, maybe a changeup, I read. Yeah, yeah. So he's basically a guy who has really good minor league numbers based on a slightly above average stuff in command. And so it's the kind of – 
uh, a guy that scouts would look at and say, we don't think it's as good as his minor league numbers say. Uh, we think there's some room for aggression here. Stat heads are going to like him a little more than scouts are. Everyone thinks he's fine. No one thinks he's terrible. I mean, the, the guys I've talked to generally see him as more of a, a four or five with, you know, number three upside if everything goes really well. Uh, but is that a guy you want to give up, uh, you know, as a pitching prospect who's a couple years away? And that's the only thing you get in return for, you know, a, a quality major league closer who's under contract for a million dollars next year and has team control for five years beyond that. Uh, another trade, or no, I guess not another trade, another signing that either has happened or is about to happen, uh, Nate McClouth back to the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the, the, the Pirates have both Jose Tabata and Andrew McCutcheon locked up for a while. Their left field role, um, left field spots a, a little bit more fluid. I guess some combination of Alex Presley or maybe, oh, maybe even Ro- Robbie Grossman, who had a terrific AFL. But is at this point, does this make McLeod the starter and left? No, I think they brought in McLeod as a part-time guy, and I think uh, if you look at McLeod's splits, he's uh, actually a pretty good part-time guy to have around. His uh, his numbers against left-handers are absolutely atrocious. He's one of the worst hitters in baseball against left-handed pitching. Even during his down years, the last couple years in Atlanta, where he was a pretty big bust after coming over in a trade, he's a reasonable hitter against right-handed pitching. He draws walks, he makes contact, the power dried up a little bit, but it's not no power, and there were some injuries there, so there's reasons to think that maybe the power will bounce back a little bit. He's not helpless against right-handers. He's totally helpless against left-handers. So you can make McLeod a uh, you know 300 plate appearance per year guy, and maybe get a pretty nice little player. And so if you know, I'm assuming it didn't cost the Pirates more than about a million bucks. I haven't heard official terms, but uh, you know, I'm the chief for a part-time you know useful outfielder against right-handed pitching, and I kind of like the McLeod addition. Okay. Uh, well, I guess uh, we, we've talked. Uh, these are all the player transactions that I've seen, or, or you know, sort of, uh, you know, have been recorded. You got anything else for me? Yeah, it seems like uh, the Rockies this morning have traded Houston straight to the San Diego Padres. Uh, I'm not sure if it's done, done, but it seems like it's almost certainly going to happen at this point. Uh, the Rockies are apparently picking up quite a bit of cash in order to try and get some prospects in return. Um, so more closer roulette because it seems like every team in baseball is going to end up with a new closer next year except for maybe the Yankees. Well, that's uh, that's sort of strange. Uh, are the Padres, are they going to be a competitive team in, in 2012? Probably not. I think that from the Padres' perspective, it's a little bit bewildering uh, why they would surrender prospects to get a one year of a closer. And then, uh, you know, it's possible that they think that uh, they can get straight into Petco where his home run problem will uh, evaporate and then he'll look really good in July and they can ship him, put him for more than uh, they paid for him. I mean, it's possible that that's the, that's the plan is give up okay prospects, have him pitch well in Petco, and then get good prospects in return. But I think. You know, major league teams understand that Petco is a pretty good place to fit. I'm not sure how much success in that park is actually going to help his trade value. Is we've seen this a bunch then? Uh, teams signing or trading for um, closers or or sort of high leverage relievers for the purposes maybe of looking forward to the July trade deadline and um, essentially uh, maximizing the profits off of the signing. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's uh, you know the old. Uh, Pump and dump philosophy that Billy Bean kind of made famous in Oakland a while ago when he went to guys like Billy Taylor and he just, you know, found generic middle relievers, made them a closer for a year and then sold them off for prospects. Uh, it's not a bad strategy. I think that teams have gotten smarter and so you might not be able to do it as easily as you used to. Um, but I do think that there is some value if you're a rebuilding team in, you know, sticking someone in the ninth inning, letting them have succeed for three months and then trading them for prospects. 
during the summer and then sticking a new guy in the bullpen in the closer role for the second half of the season and see if you can turn him into a proven closer. You can almost get two proven closers in the same season. Uh, moving on from transactions, have you seen any uh, peculiar sights around the around the lobby there? Uh, I actually didn't see this, but I was told yesterday that the uh, horde of people chasing Jeffrey Loria and the Marlins through the lobby after they were done meeting with the pool of agent was quite a sight to behold. I was, uh, from, what, from what I understand, it was like a, a throng of people chasing after, almost like a congressman trying to run from a sex scandal of like shouting questions at Jeffrey Loria and having him snap fingers and trying to get to an elevator before he can answer any questions. It was uh, apparently quite a sight to behold. Yeah, well, uh, well, hopefully we can get some video of a, of a similarly intriguing um, um, instance today. Uh, speaking of today, what what sort of uh, what do you expect to happen? We mentioned pools. Um, any, yep. Anything else looking likely uh, for the next 24 hours? Well, this is basically the last day the team can get anything done. I mean, everyone's still here tomorrow, but the Rule 5 draft is in the morning, and then everyone packs up and leaves the hotel and goes and gets on a plane, and so nothing's going to happen tomorrow, really. Uh, teams are going to be traveling. They're not going to get any business done. So uh, any, anyone who wants to do anything at the winter meetings has to do it today, or you know, they're not going to get it done here. So I think we will see some stuff happen. I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, once pools is off the board, that's going to clarify a lot of stuff, whether the Marlins still have money for C.J. Wilson, uh or not, you know, he might go somewhere else if Pool signs in Miami, or if Pool decides to stay in St. Louis, I can see the Marlins saying, okay, we've got plan B, C, and D, and we're going to go move on that. C.J. Wilson signing might uh, open up some doors for Mark Burley to sign. Um, so I think that we're going to see probably three or four moves today of some import as teams are looking to try and wrap stuff up before they get on the airplanes tomorrow. You mentioned the Rule 5 draft. That's tomorrow what time? Uh, I think it's 9 a.m. It might be 8 a.m. It's pretty early. They like to drag us out of bed for... Uh, meaningless minor league transactions. I used to really like the Rule 5 draft before they changed the rules and made it so that everyone with talent is now protected. Um, but now they just get us out of bed really early in order to uh, hear names that people will never hear again. And when you say that everyone's protected, I, I think what you mean is that they added an extra year to protection, right? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years ago they uh, basically made it so that you could protect your young players for one additional year and that allowed teams to, like the, the former Johan Santanas are no longer available. So teams will now be able to get those guys into the higher level of the minors before they become Rule 5 eligible, and uh, then they'll be able to make a decision on them one way or another. So you're not seeing these like really good young prospects who are just four years away from the majors get un- you know, unprotected and then selected in the Rule 5 draft. Now it's the Rule 5 draft is mostly a collection of guys who probably shouldn't be in the majors or will never make the majors. Well, what about Brad Emus? He went in the Rule 5 draft. Right. I mean, it's not an exclusive. Uh, <laughs> these guys are all useless. I mean, there, you know, there will be some uh, decent pieces that come out of tomorrow's Rule 5 draft, but there's going to be like 50 or 60 guys taken, and two or three of them will be of any value ever. So trying to figure out which of those 50 will be the two or three is uh, not easy. Hey, what is, uh, what is the Dark Overlord David Appleman doing there? You seen him around? Uh, right now, he's probably still sleeping. Uh, he likes his his morning rest, and since he's not as invested in uh, you know posting on the site throughout the day, he can uh, get a little more napping then. But uh, he's actually done a lot of coding while he's here. He's uh, he's probably got a new pitching hack leaderboard that's been rolled out. Those are crazy. Uh, those those are so good. Yeah, yeah. Those were finalized while he was sitting in the media workroom, and uh, so he's getting fan graphs work done, and then we're having meetings with people and doing fangraphs business and then, uh, you know, just getting things done. Do you have any power meetings? Uh, I don't know if I would call it a power meeting. We're having a power lunch, I guess. We're uh, meeting with a, a few folks at lunchtime, 
to discuss some things that will hopefully be fun for the future. So, oh, sounds so uh, mysterious. I I would... Yeah, no, but the, the anonymity, that, that really piques my interest. Uh, I will say that it is involved the Faber Analytics Convention in, in March that we're involved with. So, um, you know, we're finalizing some details and just how involved we're going to be. Um, but I think it's going to be an exciting thing for Fangrass readers, especially those who can make it to Arizona in March. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Hey, Dave Cameron, thanks for joining us again from somewhere in the in the bowels of the Hilton Anatoly in Dallas, Texas. All right. Thanks for having me, Carson. All right. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangrass Audio.